Welcome to Diving Deep, part of the Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits from his books will go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Robbie, on a recent podcast, we celebrated our 100th episode of Fixing Healthcare. Several readers wrote asking for your thoughts on the evolution of medicine since the time our podcast series began. What can you tell them? Jeremy, Albert Einstein pointed out that time is relative. My first thought is that when it comes to healthcare, five years can feel like both a long and a short amount of time. My second thought is that over the past five years, the changes in healthcare have been both positive and negative. So before we reach a conclusion on where we are today versus where we've been in the past, let's examine what's happened that's good, what's happened that's been bad, and what's happened that is truly ugly. Gravy, let's begin with the positive. What three successes can we put into the good category? In my mind, Jeremy, Healthcare's greatest triumph was the creation and implementation of a new class of vaccines. Remember, COVID-19 was first recognized in the U.S. in March of 2020. Operation Warp Speed, the government-funded springboard for drug development, that was announced in May. Health experts were very doubtful that Pfizer, Moderna, and others could create a safe and effective COVID-19 vaccine using a messenger RNA, or what's called an mRNA technology. They pointed out that after two decades of trying, no vaccine had yet been approved by the FDA using this technology, and none had been introduced into clinical practice. And yet, a little over a year later, August of 2021, the FDA approved the first vaccine, with subsequent approval given to two additional ones in a matter of months. Previously, the quickest the vaccine had been developed which was the one for mumps, took four years to complete. All of the vaccines in use today have required a minimum of five years to produce. Robbie, why do you label this the greatest triumph? Jeremy, I'm so impressed by the success for four reasons. First, the vaccine has been estimated to have saved at least a million American lives and far more worldwide. Second, it allowed the world to resume normal activities faster than had we had to wait for people to develop immunity through infection. Third, the success of the mRNA technology has opened the door to the possibility that researchers can create other life-saving vaccines, including ones that might prevent or fight cancer. And finally, our world is now better prepared for when the next viral pandemic strikes, which inevitably it will. Robbie, what's a second positive development? In this category, Jeremy, I'd put the recently developed weight loss medications. As you remember from a prior episode, these drugs were originally developed to help patients manage type 2 diabetes. But a side effect from them was significant weight loss, allowing obese individuals to reach a healthier weight. 
and offering individuals the opportunity to prevent and even reverse diabetes and heart disease. For decades, America's $150 billion a year diet industry, it's failed to curb the nation's continued weight gain. And well-intended efforts around lifestyle medicine, ones that focused on increased exercise and proper nutrition, and ones that included restrictions on sugary sodas and fast foods, they've proven disappointing. Across the country, obesity has become epidemic. And in contrast, these GLP-1 medications like Ozempic, they're highly effective. On average, they help overweight and obese people lose 15 to 25 pounds with side effects that are manageable for nearly all users. Rabbi, how do you see these pharmaceutical advances playing out for the health of all Americans in the future? Sure, I'm optimistic that by combining these new drugs with lifestyle medicine and health coaching, that we finally can offer patients a comprehensive and effective way to lose weight. Obesity underlies many of medicine's ongoing failures when it comes to prevention of chronic diseases and avoidance of complications from them, problems including heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. Unfortunately, the biggest stumbling block to widespread availability of these new medications, it's their exorbitant price. The price that manufacturers charge currently upwards of $16,000 for a year's supply. And that makes these medications unaffordable for most Americans. Robbie, what's a final example in the good category? The final example is the political, not the pharmaceutical realm. For the first time, Congress has taken action to address the problem of ever more exorbitant drug prices. Specifically, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 gave the federal government the ability to reduce spending as part of the legislation that authorized Medicare starting in 2026 to negotiate drug prices for Medicare recipients. It's hoped that with this newly authorized ability that Medicare can become financially viable. In total, it's estimated by the Congressional Budget Office that this legislation will decrease the federal deficit by $237 billion over 10 years. However, that's only a small step compared to the over $3 trillion that Medicare will spend on medications during that same time period. Currently, Americans pay twice as much for the same medications as people in Europe. And that's largely because of the congressional legislation passed in 2003 when the Medicare drug benefit was first introduced. That law, the Medicare Prescription Drug Price Negotiation Act, made it illegal for Health and Human Services, HHS, to negotiate drug prices with manufacturers, even for the individuals publicly insured through Medicare and Medicaid. Now, under provisions of the new Inflation Reduction Act, the government has already announced the 10 widely prescribed medications that it will negotiate prices for. The list was compiled based on how much Medicare's Part D drug program spends for each medication annually. The lineup includes prescription treatments for diabetes, cardiovascular disease, arthritis, cancer, asthma, kidney failure, and Crohn's disease. Already, the drug industry 
and I'm talking about both the drug manufacturers and the U.S. Chamber of Congress, they've filed numerous legal challenges. To me, that demonstrates the magnitude of the threat that reigning in exorbitant pricing would pose to big pharma and its massive profits. Last year, as an example, the top five drug companies earned $80 billion in profit. And that's almost as much as the entire pharmaceutical industry spends on research and development annually. Robbie, those three advances, mRNA vaccines, effective weight loss medication, and lower drug prices sound like excellent steps forward. What are three examples of poor outcomes? Jeremy, the first negative change over the past five years has been the growing unaffordability of healthcare. The U.S. spends nearly $13,000 per adult each year, with Switzerland at $9,000, Germany $7,000, and every other nation, it spends less than half our amount. I mean, you might think that by spending twice as much as other nations, our outcomes would be superior, but they're not. In fact, the United States lags 10 of the wealthiest countries in the world in medical performance and clinical outcomes. As a result, Americans die younger and they experience more complications from chronic diseases than people in peer nations. Moreover, as prices climb and they're climbing ever higher, at least half of Americans can't afford to pay their out-of-pocket medical bills. And that remains the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. And with rising insurance premiums, alongside growing out-of-pocket expenses, more people, they're delaying their medical care and they're rationing their medications. And I'm talking about life essential drugs like insulin. And this creates a vicious cycle that likely will prolong and potentially worsen today's healthcare problems well into the future. Robbie, what's the second outcome that you put in the bad category? Jeremy, a second ongoing problem is healthcare disparities. Over the past five years, inequities in American medicine have persisted along racial lines, despite promises for years by health officials and medical leaders to reduce them. As a result today, patients in minority populations receive unequal and inequitable medical treatment when compared to white patients. And that's true even when adjusting for differences in geography, insurance status, and socioeconomics. Racism in medical care has been well-documented throughout history. And the early days of the COVID pandemic provided several examples, deadly examples. From testing to treatment, Black and Latino patients received both poorer quality and less necessary medical care, doubling and even tripling their chances of dying from the disease. The problem of racial disparity in healthcare can be observed across the medical spectrum. Studies show that black women are less likely to be offered breast reconstruction after mastectomy than white women. Research also finds that black patients are 40% less likely to receive adequate pain medication after surgery. Although technology could have helped to mitigate health disparities, our nation's unwillingness to acknowledge the severity of the problem, that's led to minimal action and it's made the problems worse. Rebbe, what's a third example of an ongoing health care problem? Jeremy, despite the passage of the Affordable Care Act a decade ago, and more than 90 million Americans now enrolled in Medicaid, there are still 30 million people 
without any health insurance. That puts the United States in the same category as some of the poorest nations of the world, not the richest. Moreover, on Capitol Hill, there is no plan to reduce the number of uninsured. And on top of that, many states are looking to significantly roll back their Medicaid enrollment. Now that the COVID-19 pandemic emergency rules on coverage no longer are in place and don't apply. In fact, the Kaiser Family Foundation estimates that between 8 million and 24 million people will lose Medicaid coverage in the 12 months after the provisions expire. We can anticipate that without coverage, people will have a harder time obtaining the preventive services they need, and as a result, they're likely to experience more chronic diseases and die younger. Robbie, if that's the bad, I'm afraid to hear what's in the ugly category. What's the first example? First example of egg on our nation's face is the rapid decline in life expectancy that we mentioned earlier. Despite the positive advances in medical science that have happened during the past five years, American life expectancy is back to where it was at the turn of the 20th century, over 20 years ago, and that's according to the CDC data. Alongside environmental and social factors, medical failures have contributed to our nation's dip in longevity. Researchers have calculated 200,000 Americans die annually from medical errors, and an additional 400,000 die from misdiagnoses. And even in those areas for which there are factors outside the control of clinicians, there are hundreds of thousands of deaths each year that could have been avoided. As an example, studies have concluded that many of the 1 million plus COVID-19 deaths over the past two years were preventable with better management of chronic diseases. And so were a significant number of opioid deaths and teen suicides. The problem is we just don't have the right training. We don't prescribe the right drugs and our mental health services they're just not adequate or readily available. But regardless of the exact causation for the decline in life expectancy, Americans are living two years less on average than when we started the Fixing Healthcare podcast five years ago. And that means that people in other nations are living five years more on average than individuals in the United States. And we can assume that when it comes to their health and the ability to live a fulfilling life, that the health problems people experience in the United States begin earlier than in other nations. Other countries which spend, as we said, far less on medical care than we do. Robbie, what's the second bad and becoming worse problem for America's health? Jeremy, I put maternal mortality in the ugly category since the U.S. is a total outlier compared to other wealthy nations. The United States is the only country with a growing rate of mothers dying from childbirth. The U.S. experiences 25 maternal deaths per 100,000 live births. In contrast, Norway, it's at 1.8. New Zealand, 1.7. And the Netherlands, 3.0. And we've doubled the number of deaths compared to France, the country with the second highest rate of women dying from birth. We are an outlier. Moreover, when you look at the risk of a mother dying during delivery or in the postpartum period, 
you find that as bad as the numbers are for white women, the mortality rate is dramatically higher for black women. Even when controlling for economic factors, black mothers still suffer twice as many deaths from childbirth as white women. And with growing restrictions on a woman's right to choose, the maternal mortality rate will continue to rise in the United States going forward. It's bad enough to be twice as bad as the next worst country, but it's truly ugly when the gap is nearly twice as large as it had been five years ago. Robbie, what's the third severe problem of the past five years? Jeremy, I put our nation's failure to address mental health issues on the ugly list as well. We've seen the mental health of our country decline with rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide on the rise. These problems, they were bad prior to COVID, but years of isolation and social distancing have only aggravated the crisis. Suicide is now the leading cause of death for teenagers. More than one in every thousand youths take their own lives each year. The newest data show that suicides across the U.S. have reached an all-time high, and they now exceed homicides. Even with the expanded use of telemedicine, mental health in our nation is likely to become worse as Americans struggle to access and afford the services they require. When it comes to the mental health challenge, I apply the ugly label because not only is the problem at a crisis level, but unlike some other healthcare failures, our country doesn't have a plan in place with the possibility of success. As such, it isn't speculative. American mental health will definitely worsen before it has the possibility of improving. Robbie, how would you summarize the past five years? Jeremy, in looking at the three lists, I'm reminded of a baseball slugger who can occasionally hit awe-inspiring home runs, but strikes out most of the time. The crowd, they may love the big hitter and celebrate the long ball, but in both baseball and healthcare, failing at the basics consistently results in more losses than wins. And that's been the healthcare story for the United States over the past five years. Yes, American healthcare has had a few great wins, and we should celebrate them, but it's produced a losing record overall. New drugs and surgical breakthroughs, they've made headlines. But the deeper, more systemic failures of American healthcare, they rarely penetrate the news cycle. If our nation wants to make the next five years better and healthier, elected officials and healthcare leaders will need to make major improvements. We'll have to reverse falling life expectancy. We'll need to make medical care more affordable. We'll need to provide tools to meet the mental health needs of the country. And we'll need to reduce maternal mortality and healthcare disparities. Robbie, as you noted, most of these problems have existed for many years, and we've had dozens of brilliant guests on our Fixing Healthcare podcast offering powerful solutions. In your opinion, why has progress not really happened? Jeremy, reflecting on why few, if any, of our guest recommendations have been implemented, I don't believe the problem has been a lack of desire by our nation to improve or the quality of ideas presented. Rather, 
I believe that the biggest obstacle has been the immense size and scope of the changes proposed. When looking at an immense problem, it's reasonable to recognize that it can't be solved without an equally large solution. But the best strategic plan, without the ability to implement it, it proves powerless. As such, at this point in time, I believe that to overcome the inertia, our nation will need to first narrow its ambitions and begin with a few incremental steps that address key failures. Of course, ultimately, transformation will be needed with massive changes in how doctors and hospitals are paid, organized, and led. But asking the healthcare industry to accomplish all of that in a couple of years, I think that proves too daunting and difficult to achieve. Instead, I think the best we can do is focus on steps which are actionable by elected officials and healthcare leaders and ones that are relatively inexpensive. And in doing so, I believe that we can at least stop the current slide and hopefully make some progress in improving our nation's health. Robbie, I'd like to hear three such examples. Can you begin with one? The first opportunity will have a huge positive impact, and that's to shore up primary care. Compared to the United States, the world's most effective and highest performing healthcare systems deliver better quality of care at significantly lower costs. One important difference between us and them is primary care. In most high-income nations, primary care makes up roughly half of the physician workforce. In the United States, it accounts for less than 30%, with a projected shortage of 48,000 primary care physicians over the next decade. Primary care is better than any other specialty at simultaneously increasing life expectancy while lowering overall medical expenses. Primary care clinicians accomplish this by first screening for and preventing diseases and then helping patients with chronic illness avoid the deadliest and most expensive complications including heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. But considering that it takes at least three years after medical school to train a primary care physician, if our country wants to make a dent in the current shortage over the next five years, the U.S. government must act immediately. The first thing would be to expand resident education for primary care. Congress, which authorizes the funding, would allocate $200 million annually to create a thousand additional primary care residency positions each year. The cost would be relatively inexpensive, less than 0.2% of federal spending on healthcare. And the second action would require no additional spending. And that would be for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which cover the cost of care for roughly half of all American adults to shift dollars and narrow the $108,000 pay gap between primary care doctors and specialists. Doing this will help attract the best medical students to the specialty as the additional slots become available. And together, I believe these two actions will bolster primary care and improve the health of millions of Americans. Robbie, what's a second step our nation could take? Jeremy, a second positive step would be to better use the currently available technology that exists to expand access and lower costs. A decade after the passage of the Affordable Care Act, 
30 million Americans are without health insurance, while tens of millions more are underinsured, limiting access to necessary and life-saving medical care. Unless something's done, Jeremy, healthcare is expected to become even less affordable for most Americans in the future. The reason is that without urgent action, national medical expenditures are projected to rise from $4.3 trillion to $7.2 trillion over the next eight years. And long before that, the Medicare trust fund will be insolvent. In the face of insurers and providers demanding $3 trillion more for the same problematic medical cares today, businesses and elected officials, they cannot resist any proposal that expands coverage. In fact, as premiums rise, companies and potentially the government will look for ways to restrict health benefits, not expand them. Almost every industry that's had to overcome similar financial headwinds, they did so by technology. Healthcare can take a page from this playbook by expanding its use of telemedicine and generative AI. Robbie, how might they go about accomplishing this? As you remember, Jeremy, at the peak of COVID-19, telehealth visits accounted for 69% of all physician appointments. During that time, the government waived restrictions on usage of telemedicine. And contrary to widespread fears at the time, patients and doctors rated the quality, the convenience, and the safety of these virtual visits as excellent. However, with the end of COVID, many states are now restricting telemedicine, particularly when clinicians practice in a different state than the patient. To expand telemedicine use, both for physical and mental health issues, state regulators and legislators will need to loosen restrictions on virtual care. Doing so will increase access for patients and diminish the cost of medical care, both paid through payers and businesses and government. It doesn't make sense that doctors can provide treatment to a person who drives across state lines, but they can't offer the same care virtually when that individual is at home. Similarly, physicians who face the shortage of hospital beds during the pandemic and look for innovative solutions, they began to treat patients in their homes. And as with telemedicine, the excellent quality and the convenience of the care, it drew praise from clinicians and patients alike. Building that, on that success, doctors could combine wearable devices, wearable monitors these are, with generative AI tools like ChatGPT, and the technology would monitor patients 24 by seven. Doing so would allow physicians to relocate care safely and more affordably from hospitals to people's homes. And that would allow patients to avoid the medical errors and the delirium that frequently result from being in an inpatient setting. Translating this technology-driven hospital at home opportunity into standard medical practice, that would require federal agencies like the FDA, NIH, and CDC to encourage and fund pilot projects and facilitate innovative, inexpensive applications of generative AI rather than focusing on ways to restrict its use. Robbie, what's the third step our nation should take that will make American healthcare better? Jeremy, American healthcare 
It's a system of haves and have-nots where your income and race heavily determine the quality of care you receive. As such, a major opportunity would be to reduce these unfair disparities in the medical care provided. Black patients in particular experience poor outcomes from chronic disease and greater difficulty accessing state-of-the-art treatments when they experience complications like heart attacks, strokes, and cancer. In childbirth, black mothers in the US, they die at a twice the rate of white women, even when the data is corrected for insurance and financial status. Generative AI applications like ChatGPT can help reduce bias in healthcare, but that's provided that the hospitals and clinicians embrace it for that purpose, the purpose of providing more inclusive and equitable care. Previous AI tools before ChatGPT, these were narrow AI tools designed by researchers to mirror how doctors practice. And a result, when clinicians provided inferior and biased care to black patients, AI outputs proved equally problematic and biased. Now that we understand the problem of implicit human bias, future generations of chats UPT can help overcome it. Robbie, how might we translate this opportunity into practice? The first step, Jeremy, will be for hospital leaders to connect electronic health record systems to generative AI apps. Then they will need to prompt the technology to notify clinicians when they provide insufficient care, inferior care to patients from different racial or socioeconomic backgrounds. As an example, in the delivery room, if nurses would normally request an anesthesiologist to come and insert an epidural anesthetic at a pain threshold of, let's say, four out of 10, but a black mother is already at five, the application would point out this discrepancy. Of course, there might be a medical reason for a particular patient to have a delayed epidural, but it's also possible that the pain in the black patient would be undervalued by the white caregiver. This tendency to devalue the pain experienced by black patients, it's been well-documented in the medical literature. And similarly, when a woman on Medicaid, after delivery experiences an unexpectedly high blood pressure, or has more bleeding than would have been predicted, the application would point out to the nurse that when her patients have private insurance, she usually would call the attending physician in this clinical situation. Bringing disparities in medical care to people's consciousness, I'm hopeful it can help overcome unconscious implicit bias. And doing so would save the lives of hundreds of black mothers and could go a long way toward reversing our nation's embarrassing maternal mortality rate which as we said, is the worst in the industrialized world. Similarly, apply the same technology-driven approach to identifying racial disparities in a range of other medical areas. That would improve the country's health overall and would move the United States up in comparative clinical performance measures. Robbie, what else do you see happening over the next five years? Jeremy, I believe that two things in addition to what we've talked about so far, are inevitable over the next five years. Both will challenge the practice of medicine like never before, and each has the potential to transform American healthcare. 
First, as we've discussed on this podcast in the past, generative AI will provide patients with more options and greater control. Faced with the difficulty of finding an available doctor, patients will turn to chatbots for their physical and psychological problems. Already, AI has been shown to be even more accurate in diagnosing a variety of medical problems and even more empathetic than clinicians in responding to patient messages. The latest versions of generative AI, they're not yet ready to fulfill the most complex clinical roles, but they will be in five years when they are 30 times more powerful and capable than today. At that time, I predict that generative AI will be a standard part of how doctors provide medical care to patients. And fortunately, medical students are already now being trained in its applications. What else do you see about to happen? The second thing, Jeremy, is that I think the retail giants, Amazon, CVS, Walmart, they'll play an ever bigger role in care delivery. Each of these retailers has acquired primary care expertise. They have pharmacies, IT and insurance capability, and all appear focused on Medicare Advantage, the capitated option for people over the age of 65. Five years from now, they'll be ready to provide the businesses that pay for the medical coverage of over 150 million Americans the same type of prepaid, value-based healthcare that currently isn't available for insurers for the mass majority of people living in all parts of the country. Recent data indicate that not only will healthcare prices rise, nearly 7% for businesses in 2024, but self-funded employers currently pay significantly more for the same coverage as businesses who obtain the insurance for their employees through standard policies. Given the tight labor market, companies today are hesitant to pass along these added expenses to employees. But that can only continue as long as these businesses can in parallel pass on their costs when they sell their goods or services to others. And with the Federal Reserve continuing to raise interest rates in an attempt to wrestle down inflation sometime in the near future, rising prices will no longer be an option for most companies. And when that happens, a capitated solution, whether provided by current insurers or through the retail giants, will become attractive to all. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, I believe that American healthcare can stop the slide it has experienced over the past five years. But it will only be successful if change begins now. I hope that medical leaders and elected officials will spearhead and drive the process by joining forces and implementing these highly effective inexpensive approaches to rebuilding primary care, to lowering medical costs, to improving access and making healthcare more equitable. But Jeremy, I worry that if we continue on the current trajectory that the physical, mental, and financial health of our nation will continue to erode. And as such, the time for action is now, the clock is ticking. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcast app. 
If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare Diving Deep with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Core. Have a great day.